You're listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast, illuminating the unheard stories of today's top leaders in impact with your host, Gino Borges. Welcome back to the Poetry of Impact podcast. On today's episode, we'll be chatting with Elizabeth Funk, co-founder and CEO of Dignity Moves, an organization founded to address the crisis of homelessness. Elizabeth and I formed our friendship many years ago when we met through Tonic, a global action community for impact. In this episode, Elizabeth takes us way back to the Wild West. That is the beginning of the internet, where she started off her career in the tech world at Yahoo. You'll enjoy her funny stories of the early days of the internet. She shares her aha moment with us when she decided to carve out resources for philanthropy, like many of her friends, but couldn't come up with anything she cared deeply about. This thought in itself sparked a deep level of curiosity within her to find a way to utilize her entrepreneurial spirit to help others. She details her current passion project that's focused on ending unsheltered homelessness. Elizabeth has been a transformative power in the impact investing space, where she has repeatedly built and tested models to prove the power of capitalism to solve problems at scale. There's a lot to be learned from the way Elizabeth thinks and I think you'll deeply admire her knowledge and approach, just as I do. So drop in and enjoy this episode with Elizabeth Funk. Hi, Elizabeth. Great to have you here today. Thank you, Gino. It's nice to be here. So you're the first conversationalist or interviewee for the Poetry of Impact podcast that has a hard hat sitting behind them. And it's fun to break dirt. And I know you and I have pretty long history through Tonic in terms of the different settings and different contexts that Tonic brings members together. But you're really getting really well known in a lot of contexts and across the state of California for that hard hat. And we're going to talk about that a lot in terms of why Dignity Moves is and your inspiration for doing that. But before we jump into Dignity Moves, I want you to share a little bit about that rich history where you made the pivot from your tech background there in Silicon Valley and a lot of success that you had there building up a company that we all know about. And then all of a sudden the shift that went on like, aha, okay, there's something moving in me that's calling me to do something different. Great. Yes. Well, as you mentioned, I did start my career in technology. My first job out of Stanford was at Microsoft back when Windows was first coming out. And I was on the first team of Microsoft Word for Windows trying to convince people that they wanted a word processor that actually the words looked bold. And (laughs) people were saying, how do I know it's bold? Well, because it looks bold. And I was kind of a paradigm shift in desktop use of technology and bringing it to mere humans. And then after business school, I wanted to get back into tech. And I I went to a little company called Yahoo. We didn't have a sign on the door. My mother actually thought it was a chocolate drink, Yoohoo. It's just to tell her that was owned by Coca-Cola. That was different. Yeah, for sure. And really, you know, it was very, very early in the internet days. We had no idea where the internet was going to go, how people were going to use it. We were really just making it up as we went along. And that was really fun. It was fun because it was super unstructured. We could literally just make some guesses. We made a lot of wrong guesses and a lot of right guesses. And I loved the idea of sort of throwing something against the wall and see what sticks and that kind of innovative fast-paced, you know, making it up as we go along kind of a mentality was just absolutely invigorating for me. I had a great time there. So color in the scene for us, because we see this stuff in movies, people sitting under desk and 
basically just some crazy shit that most people aren't willing to tolerate unless you're 24 years old and fresh out of college or whatever it is. Yeah. So can you give us a little color? Because of course, we all know Yahoo. We all were on Yahoo a lot until, you know, big old Google came along. But can you take us to that early scene about what in particular was exciting for you and what did it look like on a day-to-day basis for Elizabeth? Well, you know, it was kind of trying to figure out how people were going to use the internet. And we made a lot of wrong assumptions. So for instance, there was a theory that this internet thing was going to be way too vast and too complex for people. And so people were going to want a local version. So we created Yahoo LA and Yahoo San Francisco (laughs) and uh, Yahoo New York that were confined to just topics and news and so forth that were for those specific cities. I was actually responsible for that part of Yahoo. And we quickly learned that people don't define community by their zip code. That was when that was the only choice for how to define community. And instead, people define communities by their shared love of Beanie Babies or whatever it is, right? And so that was kind of a misguess. But, you know, there were other things that were really fun. So, for instance, there was an elderly gentleman who came in. I was the business development person. So I had to meet with all these people with ideas who would come in. And this guy came in and he said, did you know that the data about flights, where they go from and to, and the pricing is all public information. Wouldn't it be cool if Yahoo wrote a front page that you could search flights and my daughter works from home. She'll print the tickets back when you had to print tickets and put the Yahoo logo on it. And we'll share the $30 travel agent fee 50, 50. Okay. So we wrote (laughs) Yahoo travel. And about a year later, this little company called Travelocity came in and they said, we've got a venture capitalist lined up who will invest in us on the condition that we buy out Yahoo's travel contract. I thought about it for a minute. I thought, I don't think I ever did a contract with that guy. (laughs) So it was kind of really the Wild West a bit. But, you know, some of these things, email, right? A friend of mine from business school came to me. He said, wouldn't it be cool if you could be your name at yahoo.com? I thought, no. Why does anybody want to have their brand associated with their search engine? You know, my name at superwoman.com or my name at coffee.com. And so I told him no. And then I started thinking about it. I thought, well, I don't really know why anybody would use this, but we might as well try since we own the Yahoo domain. And of course, the engineers, I was not the programmer. They were like, oh yeah, that's easy. Let's try it. So out came Yahoo Mail. And so we look really smart in retrospect. It was a whole lot of guesswork and you know, some things really worked, some things didn't. But that innovation and that you know experimentation. And the other thing that was really exciting about it was that you know, there are very low barriers to trying something. When I was in software, you had to design a feature and you waited 18 months before we did a, a rev of the software and we literally printed CDs and manuals. In this case, you could put something up there and sleep under your desk, which by the way, I did more nights than I didn't, and wake up the next morning and see if people were using it and how they were using it. And so that instant feedback was great adrenaline. And, you know, we also, you know, it was a lot of partnerships. It was a very, you know, the whole industry was super excited and easily you know, moving at the same pace. But because of that, there was a lot of collaboration, which I thought was really beautiful too. And, you know, Yahoo particularly, we did deals, my team, my business development team did deals all day long, where it's like, you give us your content, put it on Yahoo, we'll click through to you, we'll put your logo on and click through and drive traffic to you. No money needs to change hands, simple one-page contract. And like, it was so symbiotic because we were helping build their web pages and their traction. And we were, you know, creating a site that was a great aggregation of all the interesting things going on on the internet. And it was, you know, super mutually supportive. I really appreciated those early days of the way that the internet industry evolved. So how early were you? Like people define themselves by the number of employee they were. And then 
when did you realize that it was kind of time to go? Well, I think we were too young to even be doing employee counts at that point. It was certainly <laughs> the first round of funding. You know, I'd say in the first 30, we literally yeah. didn't have a sign on the door. In fact, That's we were great. in such a small little space that the guy sitting next to me in his cubicle, we decided we didn't have room between our two cubicles to each have a trash can. So we had one trash can that we shared. We were pretty squeezed in there. And but certainly in the first 30 and the first round of funding. And in fact, it's kind of a funny story that Yahoo got their first round of funding in the fall of 95. And I didn't graduate from business school until the spring of 96. So I was interviewing in the fall and they liked me and they said, okay, you've got a job, but you got to start tomorrow. I said, well, that's not going to work because I don't graduate until May. They said, well, really, that doesn't work? So next thing you know, I'm doing red eyes, three days here, four days there, traveling back and forth for the last few months of business school and was there when Yahoo went public, which was in April of 96, so really quickly. And then in terms of when I decided to leave, you know, I loved that sort of everybody just gets to do their thing and we're trying things out. And like I said, maybe not even doing contracts, but certainly not going through like senior levels of approval. And there was a moment a few years later, about four years later, when it was kind of my wake up moment. I realized that we were now no longer 30 people. We were 3000 people. And I had several business units I was involved with and overseeing. And each business unit had to do a half day you know, annual review where we reviewed their budgets and their headcount and their profitability and everything. So I just sit through six or eight of them in one week. And I remember walking out of one of them exhausted. I looked at Jerry and I said, I'm not quitting today, but I can promise you this will be my last annual <laughs> annual business unit review cycle. This is not for me. And it was really a self-awareness moment when I realized and it's something I've carried with me to this day, which is that, you know, we all need to understand where we are and where our best personal fit is on sort of a in this case, a company's life cycle. There's some people who are just full of ideas. And I like to say, a friend of mine wrote a book, Crazy as a Compliment. There are some crazy people out there and that craziness is a precious valued asset to come up with crazy ideas. Then there's the next stage, which is the people who don't maybe have those ideas, but they know how to recognize them and make them a reality. And then there's another batch of people who once it's stable and it's moving, really know how to scale it and institutionalize it. And being self-aware about where you are on that spectrum is mm. super important. I know I get bored in the big bureaucratic world. And yet I think one of the biggest mistakes is founder syndrome. When a founder has an idea and then they think they can run a business as it gets more scale, you know, I think there's really a different personality type and a different skill set in each place. And I came to realize that about myself. And so Yahoo was no longer the right fit for me. Gotcha. And how did, this is a little off Elizabeth, but just curious, um, were you there when Yahoo realized that maybe they weren't going to be the leader anymore? Because it was kind of Google that moved in, right? To really gobble up a lot of Yahoo's currency and presence. Were you there during that moment? I was not, although I you do are. have a funny Google story, which is that Ron Conway, who is a very famous angel investor in Silicon Valley, Ron was their first money in. And Ron was an old friend, actually. He and I had done business together back when I was at Microsoft. And he had a booklet of coupons for fonts and spell checkers and stuff that he put in the, <laughs> the Microsoft Word box. And so we had done a deal back when I was right out of college. And so Ron would always bring his companies in and wanted me to do a deal, wanted me to buy it or partner with them. And he brought in these two guys who had a search company. And he said to me, he said, I don't think this can stand alone as its own company. I think it's just a technology, not a company. And we've agreed we would sell it to you for $10 million dollars. 
I looked at him and I'm like, $10 million for search? Are you kidding me? I mean, search is just a commodity. There are 20 companies that do it. We just partner with whoever sells it to us cheapest. I'm not paying $10 million for search. (laughs) As you can imagine, it turned out to be Google. So yeah, (laughs) Ron's very grateful to me. And he's still a good friend. But no, Google had not taken off by the time I left it, but it was certainly, it was a thing. Gotcha. And you made a big pivot. You went from... The maybe coziness of Silicon Valley is the wrong word, but kind of the affluence of Silicon Valley. But you made a big leap. And what inspired? I mean, you just mentioned that you've bumped into kind of the institutional bureaucracy that inevitably occurs when a firm starts scaling. And it's very difficult for the early people who were driven by all of the Wild West, New Frontier feeling. How did you make such a big shift to going into the microfinance space? Well, it wasn't intentional. I'll say that. I left Yahoo and really thought I was going to get back into something in in Silicon Valley and in tech. Actually, there was a personal aspect to it as well, which was that the person I was then dating, who later became my husband, was running a public company out of Canada that was struggling, let's say that. And he was the CEO and really needed help. And so he stepped aside and became chairman and I stepped in as CEO. So we were working together for a few years and that was you know, the marriage didn't go very well either, but the company also, we basically sold all of the assets, used that money to buy in the shares and privatized it and then sold the business. So it was kind of a exercise in winding down a company while also winding down a marriage. And so all of a sudden I found myself single and back available and really was thinking I was going to go back to Silicon Valley. And yet I'd had some success financially. And so I decided in my little mind that I was going to make sure to carve out some percent of my time for what I thought of as philanthropy. And so I started thinking about what I was going to do professionally, but also what my little side energy was going to be that was going to be, quote, philanthropy. And it was a really kind of hollow moment when I started thinking about, well, what do I care about? And I looked at what my friends were doing, you know, supporting the opera or the arts and nothing got me. And I thought, who am I that there's not something I deeply care about? It was actually pretty painful and it caught my attention. And I thought, I got to go explore that because surely that's not true, you know? And so I started researching and looking around and I ran across this idea of microfinance and it resonated for me because of my Silicon Valley roots. And I had seen firsthand the power of entrepreneurship and people sleeping under their desks and working 20 hour days because they're so excited about their thing. And the idea of harnessing that same entrepreneurial energy to help people in developing countries build their own way out of poverty really resonated for me. And so I took matters in my own hands. I wanted to get a little attention. So I wrote a $5,000 check to Grameen Bank, just mailed it off and said, I'd like to talk to you guys about what I was doing. And I got a phone call <laughs> and they invited me, of course, Grameen just being the big, you know, the big girl in the industry. And they invited me to attend a microfinance conference. So they suggested I attend and meet them there. And, and I met Muhammad Yunus and one thing led to another and he invited me to potentially join their board. So I sat in as an observer on a Grameen Bank board meeting. And I started learning more and I thought, wait a minute, their economies are scaled at this. The bigger these organizations get, the lower interest rate they can afford to charge. And yet this organization is profitable. Why are they doing this on grants and donations, right? I might be able to get a $100 grant or donation, but I might get $100,000 if I could tell somebody if they were going to get their money back, even with a modest return. And with the kind of money that you could get, You could then earn economies of scale and actually afford to help more people, but charge a lower interest rate. So I raised the question and Muhammad, you just got very, very grumpy. And he said, it's unethical to make money while doing good. 
I thought about it. And then at the break, Steve Rockefeller pulled me aside. And he says, it's not really about the ethics. It's just not possible. I thought, you guys are wrong. Like, I don't know. I went home and I thought, I'm fine with my ethics on this. Yes, there's a byproduct that my investors make a return. But if I can help multiples the number of people and charge them a lower interest rate, I'm actually good with it, right? I have my ethics. You have yours. I respect them. And so really, to be honest, I started the Dignity Fund kind of to prove them wrong. You know, I mean, it was really just a hypothesis that it could be done. It was a small fund. It was less than $10 million, friends and family. The idea of impact investing, the term hadn't even been coined. This was 2003, 2004. My friends were all puzzled. They're like, wait a minute, why am I getting my money back? This is microfinance. That's charity. I'm like, well, but so we kind of made it up. We did debt, not equity on the belief that we didn't want to have a misalignment of incentives. We didn't want to have equity owners in any way have an incentive to see that we charge the highest rate we could afford to get away with. So it was a debt instrument. And we lent money to 14 microfinance organizations in 12 countries. And it worked. Those organizations grew way faster than they were already growing. And we made a nice little modest return, 4%, 6% in different years, which in 2008, I think I was the best performing part of most people's portfolios. But you know, from the beginning, I never set out for this to be you know, something big I was going to grow. It was really a proof of concept. And the most important thing to me was I created a little, you know, investment committee advisory board and I asked the big guys to sit in on it. Deutsche Bank and Citibank and Axion and Women's World Banking, because nobody was thinking this way. I said, just watch and see, see if you couldn't do this yourself. And the biggest achievement that I think Dignity Fund had was that very shortly thereafter, Deutsche Bank raised an $85 million fund. Citibank started doing this. And when I had fully invested fund one and people were coming to me saying, are you going to raise fund two? I said, absolutely not. I'm going to get out of the way and let the big boys run. This was proof of concept. And so from there, I did start spending a lot of my time. I joined the board of the Deutsche Bank's fund, actually a couple of their funds and Axion's fund and really became a cheerleader. And all the way through that, I kept thinking, I got to get back to getting a job. (laughs) This was my hobby and I'm supposed to not do my hobby this long. But, you know, I never went back. I never went back. And I fell really in love with the idea. I became a big spokesperson, not specifically for microfinance, but for the concept that if we're going to solve the world's problems, we need to be able to do it at scale. And the way you do things at scale is by harnessing the power of capitalism. And it's very clear in my mind, my definition of impact investing is not about maximizing returns. It is about maximizing the impact. And if the sharpest tool in the drawer is a tool that involves returns to investors, then I will use that But because I want to have the impact happen. And obviously with impact investing, there are all sorts of different approaches and and models for maximizing returns and maximizing impact, but that's kind of where I fall out. And I've been doing that ever since. Got a couple of other funds that I've been working with now in Latin America, equity funds. I participated on the investment committee of an impact fund of funds. You know, I've just been kind of working in that ecosystem now for the last, gosh, 18 years. So you brought up the ethics and you brought up how your friend was like, oh, I don't know, Elizabeth, I'm uncomfortable with that. And you talked about it, it's like, well, I'm kind of comfortable with it. And I know that because of a previous conversation we've had, you've bumping up against the same kind of ethical conversation in regards to how to finance the dignity, I mean, the dignity moves projects at scale. It's like, how can we get lots of capital moving in this for lots of different cities and lots of different counties and so on? 
I want to have that conversation, but it's only going to make sense if you touch on a little bit of that transition from microfinance to helping out the homeless populations across the state of California. And inevitably, as I see, you're probably setting up a prototype for the entire country to some extent. And I'm guessing phone calls will be coming in at some point beyond the borders of California. But before we get there, let's just kind of lay the groundwork for that. Like, hmm, I don't like what I'm seeing and something's not allowing me to just kind of walk by this problem. I have to walk right into it and I need to find a way to walk through it, but I can't keep walking around it. Well, you're right, Gino. And when the pandemic hit, the fund that I'd been most involved with, which was in Latin America called Dev Equity, the second fund had been fully invested. We were starting to think about raising fund three. And for those of you who know me, I'm a little, got a little ADD. I get a little bored doing the same thing over and over again. And so my heart wasn't really into doing fund three. So when the pandemic hit, I took it as an opportunity to just take a step back. And there was literally a tent across the street from my house in Pacific Heights, which is one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in San Francisco and one of the wealthiest cities in the world. And because of the pandemic, the homeless were allowed tents for the first time and colorful and very prominent. And so it was very visible. And I thought, you know, how is this possible in such a wealthy place and a wealthy country? And so I really didn't intend to have it go very far, but I just started doing research, started looking into the problem. And a group of members of Young Presidents Organization, which is a lot like Tonic, it's a member-based organization, but presidents and CEOs. And a group of us came together as just a task force, just to bounce around ideas and see what we could learn. And so I started researching it and learning, and I did literally what turned out to be over 350 30-minute Zoom calls with anybody in the homelessness field to just learn and form a hypothesis. And that's back before Zoom fatigue set in, the beginning of the pandemic when everyone was bored and willing to take those calls. (laughs) That's true. That's true. I remember that. (laughs) That was a great window to do research. (laughs) And I started looking at it, and I realized that particularly in California and on the West Coast, We keep spending more and more money and the problem keeps getting worse. So we're obviously doing something wrong. And that bugs me. And as I looked at it more, I realized that California particularly, they have this notion that the way we're going to end homelessness is to build everybody permanent housing, you know, and the problem is that's costing us $800,000 per unit and people don't realize. And that's before inflation. It's north of a million dollars per unit on average that we're spending in our big cities to build this housing for people experiencing homelessness. And because it takes so long and so expensive, the result is my calculator doesn't go that high. We're never going to build our way out of it with that strategy. And yet 72%, therefore, of the people who are unsheltered or who are homeless are literally unsheltered because they're waiting on waiting lists for that housing. And the only alternative for them is a group shelter, which thanks to COVID, it's become more obvious that those aren't safe. They weren't safe to begin with. And so the only alternative is the streets. And I felt like we're not thinking hard enough about options for people who aren't ready for that permanent housing yet. They're on the wait list. And a couple of other things that I learned that were sort of the aha moment for me is that when people first fall into homelessness, the vast majority of them don't yet have a mental health or drug addiction problem. That stereotype is ill-founded. However, 30 days after surviving on the street, the percent has doubled. And the average wait time in San Francisco is 14 years. So yes, pretty much most everybody who's on the streets in San Francisco or any of the big cities probably is struggling with a mental health or drug addiction problem, but it's because they didn't have a place to be in the meantime. And they're on this waiting list for 14 years. And I also feel like if people can get inside early, it kind of goes back to my microfinance philosophy, which is helping people help themselves. Like, I don't know that I think we should just let anybody who becomes homeless get their own 
full apartment that's paid for by the government. I believe that there should be an interim stop where people have a chance and we hope to try to help them find other exits out of homelessness, reuniting with family and, you know, applying for jobs and those sorts of things. And so those things can't be done while they're on the streets. And so as I started to look at it, I thought, man, we're really missing it. And if we could find a dignified way for people to have a place to be in the meantime, we might not need as much permanent housing or at least supportive housing in the end. And I'll never forget that moment. I'm like, God, are we just missing this obvious thing? And I thought, oh man, now I got to do this. (laughs) It really was kind of more that I think that when I see something so obvious that isn't being done, itches me. And I felt like, all right, I've got to try. And, you know, in all that research, I learned a lot of things that, you know, made it so crystal clear. And I think maybe people who've been working in the homelessness field for a long time haven't taken a step back and done a fresh assessment of the hypothesis. I think something about coming at it fresh and maybe with a business mindset helped me to see some obvious opportunities. One of which, and one of the most important is that, you know, why aren't people going to go to shelters? There's shelter beds available. Why? So there's surveys. They go out to the encampments and say, why won't you take this bed? Well, people want their own space. They want to be able to lock their door and have privacy. Pretty fundamental. So why are we building group shelters? Right? Like, they're just as expensive. In fact, they're more expensive than what we ended up designing. And people don't want them. So we're selling a product nobody wants to buy. You know, it's kind of bringing your business thinking to a problem that has been, you know, led by folks who've been in it a long time. And I think the other big message is my Silicon Valley roots that, you know, Silicon Valley's motto is disruptive technology and reinventing things. And, and I've really tried to come at this problem with that same thinking, which is let's do things differently, right? Let's try new things. Let's innovate. And there aren't typically innovation budgets in government, right? So that's where private sector and you know Silicon Valley startup type thinking is really powerful. So the last time we saw each other in San Francisco, this is a few months back, you invited myself and a few friends to go tour one of the Dignity Moves sites there on Market Street. Walk us through, for somebody who hasn't been to a site, why is it unique and what have been some of the tweaks and learning lessons to get it kind of dialed in? Because now I know you're franchising essentially that prototype to other counties and and other cities. But was that one of the first sites you took me to that you've been kind of getting groomed and dialed in? If not, it's one of the first, maybe not the first, but it's the first batch, I guess. Yeah. So the model is this, you know, in California, land is super expensive. So we look at why is permanent housing so expensive to build? Well, the cost of land. Great. Then we're going to design these things so that we can borrow land, right? Like, then I'm not going to do it on purchased land. And so we set these little units up as portable. And so that particular site that you saw is owned by a private developer who is going to be building a permanent housing project there someday. They're tied up in entitlements. And I can tell you that now the long entitlements process in California has become my friend. <laughs> you know, it's going to take him another three years to get permitted. So we borrow the land in the meantime. Uh, the second big hurdle in building things is you know, the really extensive building codes that ca- make California housing safe, but maybe aren't applicable in you know, this context. And so California has emergency building codes. They were designed for FEMA, right? And so forth. So there, there are basic, basic building codes that are still safe and yet can be done very quickly. And so since there is a housing emergency in California, we are allowed to use the emergency building codes. And so what we do is we set up, and then of course, as I mentioned, fundamental is everyone gets their own room with a door that locks. It's not a group shelter. So you walk in and each person gets a little room the size of a dorm room. In fact, it's a little bigger than my son's dorm room in college. 
just big enough for a bed, a desk. It's got a window, a lamp. And, and the rooms have all been decorated by people in the local community. So for instance, we had an eighth grade class do a class project and they all went to Bed Bath & Beyond and picked out pillows and blankets and wall art. And so the, they're all mismatched. And I love that, particularly for people who have been you know, incarcerated and everything looks the same, the same gray. These are all you know, mismatched and crazy. And I love that. And the residents love it. And so it's, it's, they're all designed with a lot of love. And the community, it's a former, you know, it's a parking lot. There are 70 cabins on it that we've set up. They are for individuals and couples. They're allowed to have their pets. We have about eight dogs there, which is, again, something you can't do in a group shelter. They can also be together as couples and have intimacy. Not doing that in a group shelter, right? They've got a locked door. And so, and I think the most important thing is that when people are on the streets, you know, we learn in eighth grade science, they're in fight or flight mode, right? Your brain is all, you know, the blood is going to different parts. You can't function and think about, you know, think about the future, much less without a shower, without Wi-Fi, without, you know, and so getting people into a place where they feel safe and mentally calm, then there's a much better chance that they're going to be able to start working and thinking forward. And the most important thing that happens on our site is not the buildings, it's the supportive services. So we, you know, the housing is the lure, if you will, a private room. That's the reason to come out of the encampment. But then the reason to do that is because then we've got an opportunity for the staff to help work with them on what the barriers are. And we're careful that we don't tell them what their goals need to be until you have to get a job. But we will ask you what your goals are and what's standing in the way. And so the supportive services, I use the word smother them with supportive services and everybody flinches, but that's my mommy word. It's smother them with love, smother them with supportive services. And they get assigned a case manager, which quite frankly, in mom terms, is kind of like a parent right? You don't have your driver's license? Great. Get in my car. Let's go to the DMV, right? And you always wanted to take you know, computer science. Well, why aren't you? There's this class here, right? And, and just mentoring and coaching them. And, and it's beautiful. I mean, some folks are not going to be able to be self-sufficient again. They've maybe been on the streets too long, the trauma, the drug addiction, but those people will get placed on a waiting list for that permanent housing. But hopefully a whole lot of them who would have been on that waiting list now maybe don't need to be. They can reunite with family. It's beautiful that about 30% of them can, you know, everybody's got family. By the way, I remember biology, everyone's got family. A lot of folks are ashamed. They owe a big apology somewhere, but with some coaching and maybe with somebody willing to make that first phone call, say, sure, mom doesn't want to know where you are. Do you mind if I call her? Right. And so you can help people reunite with family and, and encourage them to get jobs. And then the ones who aren't going to be able to do that, are in much better position to move into permanent housing when it becomes available. So I was there and I saw firsthand what exactly what you're talking about. All those rooms aesthetically dressed differently. I saw couples there. I saw pets. I saw people hanging out together. I saw people playing games. I saw some making jewelry. And I also saw the people that were working there and how like engaged they were. And a few of them came up to us while we were walking the premises. Obviously, you're having a huge impact, and so are the people, the caseworkers. Let's reverse the tables. What kind of impact is this having on Elizabeth when, when on a day-to-day basis, when you have a moment to pause and kind of feel into, it's not you just doing the work, but the work is also doing you. So mm-hmm. I'd like to better understand the, its impact on you and what kind of person are you becoming as a result of doing this kind of work? 
Well, there are a couple of answers to that, you know, and you know me and you know me, my history. And I went through a very, very ugly divorce for a lot of years. And there were some years where it was a full-time job. I mean, I had six different lawsuits going in six different jurisdictions and, and it was just really, really ugly. And I found myself every morning waking up and the thing I had to look forward to was a bunch of lawyers, a bunch of legal briefs and that negative energy that just get in this spiral where all I get to do is think negative energy and fight and battle. And it was just so, such a drag on my spirit. And so when I finally got through that, I have overdosed on positive energy. You know, and people ask me, what do I do for fun? I'm like, you got to be kidding. This is fun. To finally <laughs> wake up in the morning and feel so jazzed about doing something positive. And, and so you know, that's one thing that it's done for me is that I feel so excited and proud to be doing something positive again. And pendulum has swung. So maybe even overdo it. And I throw myself into this because of how rewarding it is for me. The other answer is, it's also more kind of tangible, which is, you know, when I go down to those projects and there are others other than the one in San Francisco, but I mean, literally I've said, when I'm having a bad day, I should get myself down there because I walk around there and I'm kind of the hero, you know, it's really good for the ego. I mean, people come running over going, oh my gosh, thank you. You're, you're amazing. I'm like, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's not me that's amazing, but the effort and, and what we've brought to fruition. And it's just, you know, both the staff and the residents, the staff, as you mentioned, are all formerly incarcerated. So, and not just a little bit formally incarcerated, but folks who have had serious crimes and probably would not have been employable elsewhere. And so they're great. They obviously are well-trained in conflict de-escalation and they've had to survive in prisons, but they're great at understanding these people. And so, so it's, it's an opportunity for the staff and obviously the residents have now finally gotten in off the streets and an opportunity for them. And, and so it's rewarding at that individual level. It's also rewarding because I really do think that we are now changing this systemic approach to addressing homelessness where, you know, city by city, more and more, they're all, they used to be thinking any money we spend on anything that's not permanent housing is a waste of resources. Well, I'd argue that. Yes, it's an interim solution for this person, but if interim solutions and then 80% of them might be able to self-resolve or you get one lucky person who gets an apartment while 19 others die on the street, I can do the math financially we're ahead, but certainly from a humanitarian perspective, why does one lucky person get an apartment and 19 others are on the street waiting another seven years? It's not equal. It's not humane. And yet even for the, the diehard, you know, math fiscal people, like the math is so in favor of investing in this interim housing because the ratio of people who, quite frankly, some of them will return to be taxpayers. They certainly may not need government-assisted housing, but if they're on the streets for 14 years, they will, 100%. And so it's just, you know, and there's a lot of preaching. You can hear it in my voice. I do a lot of preaching across California to governments and trying to instill that thinking, but it's, it's starting to take hold and more and more cities are starting to call. And we've got 20 cities on our waiting list right now. Whoa, really? 20? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> it is exciting. We've got one project open in Santa Barbara, another one open in Sonoma and Rohnert Park that you saw. One coming in Alameda in a couple of months and several others either under construction or in planning and across California. And as you noted, yes, we are now also expanding outside of California, probably Portland, talking to places like Oklahoma City and, and Chicago. But the other thing we're doing is trying to be really open source about this. 
there's this cynical side of people who say, well, nonprofits in homelessness want to see homelessness continue because it keeps their organization alive. Sorry, that's not, not my thinking. So we are literally trying to, you know, write a playbook, right? Here's how you do it. Here are the manufacturers. Here are the permit sets. Here's how you talk to your government and convince them to think about interim housing and where it fits in the, in their efforts. You know, trying to really be open source about about this. And we know that homelessness is complex and there are lots of jigsaw puzzles. Interim housing is only one. This is not an alternative to permanent housing. It's not an alternative to drug treatment and everything else. It's one, it's one component, but it's been a missing one. A little earlier in this conversation I was talking about, and you were, were referring to the ethics around making money on this. Obviously, this isn't going to be scalable from a nonprofit grant perspective, and you see possibilities of actually private capital coming into this space, some kind of instrument between the private world and this nonprofit endeavor, some kind of hybrid. What you're thinking around that, has it bumped into any opposition? Also, has it bumped into like some embracement as well? I'm guessing there's kind of a binary response. Either people say, hell yeah, or people are just fall off their chairs and think that you are giving wealthy people an opportunity to now double down on, you know, the poorest of the poor within our communities. Curious on how yes. you're navigating all, all those conversations and, and where you're currently at with it. Well, you know, you've known me long enough to know that you're one of the people who, when I started a nonprofit, looked at me and said, who are you and what did you do with Elizabeth? <laughs> you've, you've spent the last 18 years preaching that the world's problems are only going to get solved if there's a sustainable and a capital model to it. What do you mean you started a nonprofit? So yes, I am actively looking at ways to be able to scale this in a more sustainable way. There are hurdles, one of which is that, first I mentioned this earlier, but a lot of the powers that be in homelessness believe that any money that goes into something that's not permanent is a waste of resources. And unfortunately, it's quite a battle, honestly. And there are a lot of the big alliances for homelessness who are fiercely opposed to what we're doing. And they believe that if we're successful and we are able to get everybody into interim housing, that there will no longer be the pressure on governments to build the permanent housing and that people will languish in these little interim spots and not be able to move on. And so I understand that. And I do believe that we need more permanent housing. And I want that train to run as fast as it can. I'm not trying to stop or derail that train. I want this to be also. And so bringing in additional money and being additive to the housing system is a big goal of mine. But fundamentally, especially at the interim stage, we don't want people to pay rents because we want them to be saving money for their, you know, their deposit on their apartment. And so what's the revenue source, right? It's a head scratcher. And so I've been doing a lot of diving into that. And I do believe that there are models that we can facilitate using private capital. The most obvious one is that the governments are paying to build shelters. They just can't build very many of them because they don't tend to have the upfront money for construction. What they do have is annual budgets for the supportive services, for the meals and the staffing. And so it becomes a question of private sector being able to essentially you know, be the time shift in the capital structure. And so the idea would be for private investors to invest the money or lend the money to build the units. And then the county or city leases them from us as part of the supportive services money that they're already providing with meals and whatever. Part of what they pay is contribute to rent. And we'll pay the investors back a modest amount over, over time. So essentially financing it for the government. And that allows them to be able to steal government money. I think a lot of people philosophically believe our taxes should be 
where the money for homelessness comes from. That's why we have society and taxes. And yet governments don't have that upfront money. So that's a place where private sector can help. There are other revenue sources that we're experimenting with. So for instance, Medi-Cal now reimburses for supportive services and housing projects as they should. They realize that housing is a major determinant of health. And so trying to figure out how to get Medi-Cal to reimburse for the facilities, just like they reimburse for the hospital facilities. So we're experimenting with a lot of that stuff. It will take some experimentation is the right word where we don't know yet. Those are all hypotheses of potential revenue sources. There are other revenue sources that we're intrigued by, which is vouchers, which the Section 8 vouchers go towards somebody getting a permanent apartment. But one of the biggest constraints with getting those vouchers deployed is that they don't have enough landlords who are willing to take the person with the voucher. And if you get a voucher and you don't put it to use within 60 days, you lose it. So what if we became a place where people could come with their voucher in the meantime, live here while they shop for their apartment, and we get that voucher revenue, at least even for a few months, and that could contribute towards repaying. So it's going to need to be a very patient investor who's willing to put the money up and then allow us to experiment with and try these different revenue sources. Well, thanks for fleshing that out a little bit more, Elizabeth. If a couple things sort of stick out for me here, and one of it is very personal, and I'm not quite sure I shared this with anybody besides close friends or in a context where it probably make more sense than where than it is probably right now. But on a personal basis, I've always had this dream motif for years about being like one bad decision away from being homeless. And it would keep me up at night. I would actually wake up at two o'clock in the morning feeling like actually asking myself, where am I? And just with a slight tremble and the details would vary, but behind it was this anxiety of not being uh, housed or sheltered. And on a very primal basis, we all know we just thrive when settled at a base level. And we didn't even get into, you've touched on a little bit, the whole parasympathetic versus sympathetic nervous system. And I've seen it in my own life when I've been able to be centered versus when I've been decentered. But boy, I've never been without shelter. I've dreamed about it and I felt the anxiousness as a result of just that dream motif. But boy, are you, I think you're really onto something about this first 30 days. I can imagine my life in different points of my, because, you know, in my early 20s and my late 20s, there were parts of life where could have went either way in a lot of ways. It could have been, I could have met the wrong group, but I was definitely searching and looking and kind of aimless. And it wasn't until my mid thirties where now all of a sudden it feels like I have this foundational, very presentable, high achieving life. It hasn't always been like that. So I can taste the narrative and really chew on that narrative about the first 30 days. Cause there have been moments where I've asked myself, well, where am I going to live? And my backstop was going back to my parents. And then I thought, boy, if I didn't have my parents, I was like, you know, there, there aren't a lot of backstops for a lot of people. And there could be a lot of shame on returning back home. So like, oh, you, you start with couch surfing and then all of a sudden you and your friends get tired of that. And like all of a sudden, you know, fortunately I didn't have any addiction issues, but boy, oh boy, I can just imagine how quickly it spirals. So kudos to you on really focusing and realizing that a lot of people are like have this window of time and sometimes when they go beyond that window of time it's very difficult to retrieve that life force that may be able to pivot in the right direction 
And we could talk about the economics that once somebody passes that threshold, goodness, it gets really expensive, right? It becomes a lot of people to help sustain one life force on earth that's just completely disoriented. I want to get out to, you know, as we close here, has that been a part, you know, you and I have probably have had different lives in terms of our success levels sort of early on, but how much of sort of being able to actually see it up front and see it on a day-to-day basis, like realizes that, gosh, how close we're all, you know, you and I are successful, but just the fragility of family moment and illness and addiction, you see it. I don't see it on a day-to-day basis. We have it in Reno, but yes, I can ride my bike past it. You're not riding past it. You're riding right into it. I want to end with, I mean, how fragile is life? I mean, let's just think about, I mean, how fragile, I mean, you've talked a little bit about your own existence in terms of how how you went through this really uh, despair moment with your own union. Uh, To some extent, you were caught in negative energy. That could have easily spiraled in a different direction. You chose to go into a positive direction. But let's end with the final note on on the fragility of life, either you personally or what and or what you're seeing on the streets and in these communities. Well, I can answer both of those with the same story, which is that, you know, there's a woman at our project in San Francisco that I see myself in, in so many ways. And she had been in a violent marriage. And I too had a marriage that had violence associated with it. And she had finally left and she was ashamed. She did not want to reach out to her parents who had told her so. So she was hiding basically from them. And she didn't want to go to a group shelter. I can imagine I wouldn't, right? Especially in that situation. So she decided she was sleeping on the streets. And she, the first night she was sleeping on the streets, she was so terrified to fall asleep. Like I can imagine at two in the morning and the, you know, the people walking by. And the, so she drank all the coffee she could to try to stay awake. And she drifted off anyway. And the next morning she woke up and she said, I haven't done drugs since college, but I got to go find this thing they call meth because I have got to stay awake tonight. And she made a conscious choice to go down to the Tenderloin, find a drug dealer and buy methamphetamine so that she could stay awake at night. And five years later, believe me, I can see myself doing that. I would be terrified. I'm a wimp, man. I'm going to sleep at night by myself. Five years later, she's struggling to get clean and she's at our project. She's trying. She got a doctor's prescription. He got connected to a doctor and is getting methadone and is trying to do NA, but it's not easy. And I see so many reflections of myself in that and see how easily that could have happened. And, you know, yes, now we can help her make apologies and reach out to her mother. One of the women, the mom came, I mean, I witnessed the tearful hugs when mom found her daughter and was so relieved. And I can see myself not wanting my family to know and not reaching out to them. You know, there's so many things that I can really identify with in that story, but in so many of these stories. And, you know, unfortunately, when the pandemic hit, 40% of Americans only had two weeks of savings in their accounts. I mean, we're all one step away from that. Even if we do have means, you know, it can happen so easily. So there's humanity. I think that's the most important thing is that somehow in our brains, we have told ourselves these are not humans because it's the only way we can reconcile it. And, you know, one of the most beautiful things is, you know, stop and look them in the eye. You know, my daughter's got a club at school that's coming and doing manicures and facials for them because there's something about touching them and looking in the eyes and realizing these are, you know, these are real humans with real dreams and unfortunate circumstances and need to all stick together and try to help them build their own ways out of poverty and out of this problem. 
Such an inspiring story, Elizabeth. Where can people uh, learn a little bit more about the projects that you're working on and, you know, all this good work? Dignitymoves.org. Funded, named sort of after my Dignity Fund, which was my microfinance fund, was about the dignity of helping people help themselves. So it's a natural name morph. So we are Dignity Moves, D-I-G-N-I-T-Y-M-O-V-E-S.org. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Great to have you here. Thank you, Gino. Bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening in to today's conversation on the poetry of impact. The podcast exists for and because of listeners like you. Be sure to subscribe to the Poetry of Impact podcast on your favorite podcast player. And if you have time, leave us a review. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast. For show notes and additional resources, visit poetryofimpact.com.